This is a Willits Point Shea Stadium bound 7 express train. The next and last stop is Willits Point Shea Stadium. it is the subway to shea podcast anthony rivera here with you talking about all the news and happening surrounding that team from queens the new york mets you can follow the show on twitter at subway to shea on instagram at subway to shea and listen and subscribe to the show on anchor.fm apple Podcasts. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, and Pocket Cast. Turn on those notifications to never miss an episode of Subway to Shea. Please also take a few minutes to write me a review. Let me know what you think of the show, what you like, what you don't like. I need to know it all so I can make this show better each and every week for you Met fans out there and any baseball fans who love listening to the show. If you're a new listener to this podcast, thanks for joining us. And if you've been a supporter this whole time, Thank you. I can't thank you enough for coming on this journey with me as I talk about the team that I love, a team that we both love. So I thank you and I appreciate you. Make sure to follow me and my work for Rising Apple. I recently joined on as a contributor. Rising Apple is a New York Mets site on the fan-sided network. You can read my articles by going to risingapple.com or checking out the links in the description of this week's podcast episode. Make sure to follow Rising Apple on Twitter at Rising Apple Blog and the Fansided Network Twitter at Fansided. Before we bring on this week's guest, I wanted to thank last week's guest. Mark Healy joined the show and he's the founder and executive editor of Gotham Baseball. We had a great conversation and took a deep dive into the Mets president of baseball operations search. If you haven't listened to that episode, you should go back and do so. Mark, thank you and I look forward to to you returning to the podcast soon. Now, without further ado, let's get started with episode 42 of Subway to Shea. So, joining me now is John Sapinaro. John is a comic host, actor, writer, a voiceover artist. The man does it all, but most importantly, he's a Mets fan and co-host Till Mets Do Us Part with Matt Ibanez, a Mets podcast, a part of Chop Sports Media. Make sure to check it out. They are good friends of the show, and I'm very excited to do this crossover today. John, how are you, my friend? I'm feeling pretty good. How are you? I'm doing good. Let's get right into it, because it's been a newsworthy week for the Mets, and that's not even including the president of baseball operations search if that drama wasn't enough mike puma wrote in the new york post about what really went down between francisco lindor and jeff mcneil during the whole rat coon incident apparently during the may 7th game against the diamondbacks there was a few miscues on defense during the great shifting that goes on which frustrated francisco lindor it happened in a couple games before the incident things boiled over lindor grabbed mcneil by the throat and pinned him against the wall of the mets clubhouse tunnel 
Are you surprised at all by what happened between the two of them? I know I'm definitely not because this was speculated the whole time. I'm not surprised. We all knew that that was a cover-up and a very Mets way for this to happen, right, is that the interim GM gets fired and then two days later, this story finally comes out, this story that's six months old or whatever it is. And, you know, I know you and I joked around on Twitter about it, but, you know, I do think that Zach Scott is the obvious leak or at least somebody close to Zach Scott who, you know, he potentially let this slip to and then had nothing else to lose once he was let go. So I think that's the clear paper trail that we're looking at. I know it's speculation, but it's the timing is too convenient. I didn't mind the situation when it happened. I don't mind it now. Uh, players fight in clubhouses all the time. And I think, you know, you said you listened to Till Mets do his part, and I appreciate that. And one of the things that we've talked about all season long is that the Mets are just constantly the butt end of the media's joke or the media's scrutiny. And I think so much of that is unfair. A lot of it is fair. A lot of it is founded. I'm a Jets fan too, and I get what it is like to have your team be the laughing stock in the city. But, you know, when teams don't deserve it, they don't deserve it. And quite frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if you told me that an incident like this happened at least once in every clubhouse, in every season, on every team. And yet for the Mets, six months later, the story can't die. And that's the frustrating part about being a Mets fan sometimes. Yeah, and I said it earlier on Twitter. I don't remember a time this season where we've heard some good news. Like even when we traded for Javi Baez, right? At the trade deadline, that was a big move, a superstar player. But at the end of the day, the Mets didn't do enough and it showed throughout the rest of the season and it kind of messed them up. So I don't remember this season having to really hear some good news. This has been a really rough season. And going back to, you know, that whole article I think the biggest takeaway for me from the article is Jeff McNeil his dismissive attitude toward the positioning during the shifts you know according to a source in the article Lindor would always try to get him to move and Jeff would tell him to shut up I got it you know the tension was building and building as said in the article what are your thoughts on Jeff McNeil's attitude Uh, you know it's weird Um, I like Jeff McNeil let me just start there preface the whole conversation for you know people who may not listen to my podcast or follow me on Twitter I like Jeff McNeil a lot Um, I think that the team needs to make a lot of changes in this offseason And I think McNeil is the one that I would be hesitant to make prior to this incident, simply because I think McNeil has the most breakout potential when you compare him to the likes of J.D. Davis or Dom Smith, or even bringing back potentially Conforto. And obviously there's a big free agent contract attached to Conforto. So that's kind of a different deal. McNeil scares me because McNeil is the guy who was unheralded, unsung, came up here. All he did was hit for two years. And then last year, he took a step back. Whose fault is it? His, the coaching staff, the hitting coach, some combination of all of them probably. But I think McNeil has shown us the kind of player that he is and can be. And I think he's the kind of player that if the Mets were to move on from him, he's the kind of person that we're going to look at that can haunt us a la Daniel Murphy, a la Justin Turner. So that's what worries me. We've gotten (laughs) some, you know, hints of him being a hothead, you know, always frustrating, cursing after, you know, bad at bat. Is this attitude a big deal moving forward? I know players get frustrated and we want to see them more animated. And, you know, on the regular, you know, this is what we want to see, that fire, that desire out of players like him. But I wonder if this kind of messes with the team chemistry moving forward. I know this happened definitely a few months before things really kind of broke down for the Mets. And I I thought that they had cleared it up. So them coming out with this article now 
is kind of frustrating, and we talked about that a few minutes ago. I don't personally want to see him go. I'm not advocating for that at all. I actually like to see him, you know, kind of get his mark at third base this season and give give him that opportunity to play third base, especially if they re-sign Javi Baez and, you know, with Lindor at shortstop, I would like to see him play third base. Uh, do you think that there might be more of a movement now to trade him as well? I know you said you wouldn't I, trade him yeah. and I wouldn't trade him, but do you think that now he kind of gets in line with the J.D. Davises and Dom Smiths of, of being a part of, of a trade? I think he certainly could, and I think that's the problem with this story rearing its ugly head once again because it seemed as though we were past it. And let me just say that, you know, I like fire out of players. Now, not everybody needs to be like Jeff McNeil, but I think that a baseball team specifically, forget about the other sports, I think a baseball team is at its best when it's made up of a amalgamation of different personalities and different attitude types. And you saw that at no other, there was no more clear display of that than when Javi Baez and Lindor would not let the Yankees mouth off to them. How mm -hmm. long as Met fans have we been kicked around? Have we been, you know, the little brother in so many ways? Forget about win-loss record. Forget about World Series championships. Just when the Mets would go play the Yankees, there was intimidation. And now you have a guy like Baez that's like, no, 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 no. We don't play that here. We're doing what we do. We're playing our game. You know, and I know some old school fans don't like that. And I fundamentally disagree because, look, I also love Jacob deGrom. And I love David Wright. And I like Michael Conforto, who are kind of like those go-about-their-business type guys. Then you've got a guy like Alonzo, who has got fire in a different way. He's kind of this, you know, little bit of an innocent, aw shucks guy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you need all of those personalities. There's so many Mets fans that don't like Marcus Stroman, and I don't understand why. You know, you can't have a pitching staff that is just Jacob deGrom's. Now, you'd love that in terms of Jacob deGrom's ability. He's the best pitcher in the world. But you need to have these different kinds of personalities. And I think a guy like deGrom, who gets the ball and throws it is offset nicely by a guy like Syndergaard who's flashy in a different way and a guy like Stroman who's flashy in a different way still. I think that helps. I don't think it hinders. But I do think that there is potential for this Jeff McNeil thing to now blow up and Jeff McNeil to find his way off this team. Why? Well, because Lindor's our shortstop. Lindor is here for 10 more years and, you know, if there is any not because this story came back to light, but if there was any lingering animosity, there is no doubt in my mind that Lindor is going to win that battle a hundred times out of a hundred, a thousand times out of a thousand. Yeah. And I think that the media was loving this because McNeil, Lindor, the organization was not giving them anything from the story. We all knew what happened. All of us knew what really happened down there. And I know that they were trying to get it onto paper and you could see some of these media people getting frustrated that they weren't getting the answers and all they were getting was raccoon, raccoon, raccoon and all that stuff. And it was frustrating them. So this is probably a big day for them and they're probably enjoying it. Absolutely. And, you know, I hate to, I mean, obviously this story is new again, feelings from six months ago, but we talked about this then on my show where... The most frustrating part about it is this incident happened. Like I said, it probably happens across all teams all season long. You don't hear about it. This one, we happened to catch a glimpse of it on camera. And so obviously they had to dive deeper. The Mets did what a lot of teams are going to do. And they kept it in-house. And they kept it in-house in a cutesy, dumb way. And that's fine. That's their prerogative. But then the media outlash, a backlash, was just simply outrageous to me. Because you had people coming out and going, well, 
Do the Mets think that the fans are stupid and the fans don't deserve to really know what happened? It's like, guys, that's not what this is. And how dare you even try to paint that picture? That is not, the Mets don't think their fans are stupid. The Mets don't think that the fans don't deserve to know the truth. The Mets are trying to keep something that should be in the clubhouse in the clubhouse. And unfortunately, you know, when SNY camera picked up something that happened, you know, down the tunnel, sort of halfway in the dugout. And that's the only reason why we know about this. If this would have happened 15 feet further into the tunnel, no one would know a thing about it. Not six months ago, not today. And so, you know, the media getting their jollies off on things like this, swirling around the Mets, trying to make it seem like all these moments are LOL Mets. There are some LOL Mets moments, you know, not only historically, but even from this season, we can talk about them. But in this particular instance, this is not one of those things. And again, it's just the media, uh, to me, I think it's lazy. I think for a long time, and look, this season, you mentioned it, this season, there weren't a lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of things that the media could say that the Mets did wrong, but they try to just kind of bang this drum of same old Mets, LOL Mets, and sometimes it's just not applicable, and I think it makes the media look bad more so than it makes the Mets look bad. Well, the media also look bad with what we're going to get into next, and you mentioned him, him earlier, Zach Scott. The Mets are done with Zach Scott. He's will not be returning. There were the rumors, like you mentioned, that he leaked this information. Obviously, we don't know if it's true, but he's kind of the prime suspect to be the real raccoon of this, you know, story that leaked. Why would he do this? Well, you know, he was let go by the Mets. Obviously, he won't be returning at all because of what happened uh, with the DUI arrest two months ago. So now the Mets are going in a different direction, looking for a GM, assistant GM. Were you okay with the Mets letting him go, or did you want him to stay on board? No, I'm absolutely okay with them letting him go. And, you know, it's been a real turbulent year plus for the Mets, right? Ever since Cohen bought the team and just, you know, the Mets getting denied uh, permission to interview with certain people. And it looked like the Mets made some really competent hires, Jared Porter and Zach Scott. And unfortunately, off the field stuff comes back to bite them. And I bring up Jared Porter because, you know, Jared Porter exhibited some really, really, really terrible traits in what he did. And I think Jared Porter, I don't want to go as far to call him a predator, but there was certainly a lot of predatory behavior and things that just have no place in any workplace, let alone baseball, let alone just just terrible stuff. And I bring him up because I do think that with Zach Scott, it could have been more of a momentary lapse in judgment. Zach Scott may have a drinking problem. He may not. This may be an isolated incident. Nobody really knows except Zach Scott and probably those closest to him. So the fact that it could be an isolated incident, I do think that maybe if he cleans up his act and we find that you know this kind of thing is not something that he is prone to do, I think he probably can get a job in baseball somewhere else at some point where I don't think that, you know, Jared Porter deserves necessarily to have that opportunity. And while I think that that is true for Scott, I think when you look at what the Mets are trying to do and how they're trying to change the tenor and they're trying to change the uh, collective culture, not only in that clubhouse, but throughout that organization, try to get the stink of the Wilpons off of it, they needed to let this guy go. I mean, let's not forget, because a lot of times there'll be people with interim tags, whether it's managers, head coaches, GMs, whatever it is. And a lot of times, if they do an okay job, which I think Scott did a decent enough job, this incident notwithstanding, 
spending to keep the job, that interim tag is lifted. But how could the Mets take an interim tag off of this guy and allow him to be the GM or even allow him to slide back into a role of like assistant GM, like that idiot Buster only suggested when he got a DUI, he was already on a quote unquote probational basis because this was not his job. This was not the job he was hired to do. So, you know, the Mets didn't have ultimate confidence in him doing it to begin with. And all of this occurred after he went to a Mets event Mm -hmm. at the new owner's house. Now it seems as though he probably got drunk or drunk after the fact, but it did happen at a Mets event at the owner's house, and he didn't tell the team. I mean, that's five strikes right there. So there's no way in the world I think he could come back to this team and dictate any sort of, you know, respect, authority, and, you know, kind of lord over the Mets the way that you would need a GM to. And I I think that, you know, allowing him to kind of slip back into the shadows, like Buster suggested, is also an absurd concept. Yeah, and I didn't really expect that. I should have expected it coming in that Buster Olney and even John Heyman comments in support of Zach Scott against the Mets, you know, spinning the narrative, you know, it's a Mets loss. Scott was good at handling things. You know, Buster showing compassion for Scott is nice. You know, we all understand, you know, the situation, the human element of what happened. But as the organization has to handle things, you know, meanwhile, the Mets, if they kept Scott, obviously his tweet would have been, why did they keep the guy with a DUI if they're trying to change the culture? It's like hypocrisy at its finest. All of these guys, like Olney, Heyman, showing their support for Scott and how good he was at his job would have destroyed him for, you know, not doing enough for the team at the deadline. You know, what were your impressions of Scott as the acting GM? Were you a fan of what he did during the season or was it just obviously just wasn't enough? But were you a fan of some of the moves that he made? Well, first, before I get into that, I do want to say that I completely agree with you. I almost felt as though, you know, Buster only had two tweets ready and two articles ready. Mm -hmm. One bashing the Mets for keeping Scott and one bashing the Mets for firing Scott. And he was just waiting to see which ones he can unleash. And, you know, the Heyman article and Heyman tweets did come out earlier. And when I read the Heyman tweets, I was like, yeah, this is pretty tone deaf, you know, a little anti-Mets. But once I saw the Buster only tweets, I actually thought by comparison, the Heyman ones weren't as bad because there was a little bit of anti-Met sentiment in there, but a lot of the spirit behind what Heyman was saying was more like, it's kind of unfortunate the Mets need to get rid of this guy because there's so much instability in the front office right now and he did an okay job and he would be a good guy to keep in some capacity, but they got to let him go. Whereas only was like, let me double down real quick and just say the Mets are a joke for letting him go and I just simply can't understand how you can defend somebody. I mean, look, we all make mistakes. You see the same day I mean, this is way bigger than baseball and football and sports, but you see in the same day, the Henry Ruggs situation of how awful and catastrophic and heartbreaking and tragic DUI can end. Mm -hmm. And we're fortunate that that didn't happen with Zach Scott. So to just poo-poo it the way Buster only did was absolute garbage. And as far as Scott on the field or, you know, rather behind the scenes and the team he put on the field once he took over, yeah, I think he was fine. I, I don't think that he did so much where you're like, wow, man, the Mets are losing the next best executive. The Mets are losing the future Theo Epstein. Like, I think he did okay. But I also think once they found out DeGrom was hurt, there was a little bit of punting that happened. Now, um, anybody who listens to my show, I kind of disagree that the Mets didn't do enough. I think the Mets tried to do a lot and couldn't get certain things done for one reason or another. Uh, Maybe that's on Scott for not being as good of a negotiator or whatever it might be. But I think Scott did an okay job. That's it. I think he did fine. Just Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do feel like 
I know not a lot of Med fans are okay with it, but I do feel like using the DeGrom injury was sort of a cop-out because look at what happened to the Braves. You know, they lost Acuna. They lost Ozuna. Those are two big parts to the everyday lineup, and they mm-hmm. somehow were able to piece something together, whereas the Mets just said, you know what, let's just not do anything. I mean, we'll give them Baez, and even Sandy came out and said, you know, we, you know, we had to do something, just something. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I, I, I'm okay with them not returning. Even him kind of publicly bashing the players, you know, during their struggles with the offense was kind of an interesting role. I thought I kind of agreed with him in the beginning that, you know, calling out the players might be a good way to go, but it obviously it just didn't work. So seeing him go, I'm okay with. One thing that I forgot to mention about what Buster Olney said was he he kept going. I think even today he's, he's still tweeting about this and the fact that, you know, they would get rid of Scott being, you know, an executive and a GM, not a big role, but would they do it to a player? And I think that's kind of unfair because I feel like any team, any player in any sport would kind of, you know, give a little leeway to, you know, their players that are a big part of the whole thing going forward to not get rid of them. I I just feel like he's coming a little off base with what he's saying. And it's, I follow him, but it's, it's a very hard follow. Yeah. Um, I agree with you completely. I said a couple of things on Twitter a day ago in direct reaction to what you're alluding to here in the Buster Only tweet. And I'll just read them to you verbatim because I, I think it's the most consistent way to make my point. Um, you know, players in all sports get cut for DUIs all the time. Just because it doesn't happen every single time doesn't mean that it shouldn't happen every single time, right? So there is a pre-existing double standard there that doesn't make it okay for them to not let somebody go because that person had a DUI. And the other part of it is to argue that a superstar player, coach, executive, whoever it might be, doesn't get preferential treatment over a relative unknown or unproven makes it sound like Buster Unley's never watched sports before. You know, whether or not that double standard, and that brings me back to my first point, whether or not that double standard should exist, and it probably shouldn't, you know, people shouldn't have these you know, overarching, you know, mulligans and do-overs when they do something absolutely horrific. But they do. And, you know, the superstar, whether that be superstar player on the field, superstar coach, take a guy like Belichick in the NFL, or superstar, you know, executive, take a guy like Theo Epstein or Billy Bean, like, they're going to get more leeway in whatever it is, whether it's on the field, off the field. You know, I mean, Billy Bean can do no wrong. Billy Bean would have to do something pretty drastic to lose his current job. And, you know, to compare that to a superstar player, compare Zach Scott, who nobody even heard of, you know, in mainstream baseball circles, you know, before the Mets hired him and then elevated him, you know, to compare him to a superstar player on the field is is a laughable concept because the other fact of the matter is they talk about this all the time, specifically in the NFL. You fire coaches because you can't fire 53 guys. So, you know, there's always scapegoats to be made. Yeah, you can fire Zach Scott. It sucks if you have to replace a GM for the second year in a row, but you can replace a GM. You can't replace four people on the field, you know? So, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of leeway. And like I said, do I agree necessarily with the overarching double standard that is present in baseball and all sports? I don't, but I mean, Buster, come on. He's just grabbing at straws here at this point. Once again, I'm here with John Sapinaro, co-host of Till Mets Do His Part with Matty Banez, a Mets podcast, a part of Chop Sports Media. 
Let's get into free agents. Met free agents Javi Baez, Dylan Batances, Michael Conforto, Juris Familia, Brad Hand, Heath Hembry, Rich Hill, uh, Aaron Loop, Marcus Stroman, Noah Syndergaard, Jonathan VR, and today, Kevin Pillar. Who stays? Who goes? Who who do you want to keep on this team uh, moving forward? Who would you like them to sign? Man, okay, so uh, there's a lot there, obviously. Um, I'm just going to start with priorities and the people who I've been championing for this whole time. Um, now, I say all of this with a grain of salt because, of course, I do think as much as I might want some people back, if I was running the team and or if the infrastructure was in place, I am allowing for some wiggle room here because there are not the proper decision makers installed in that front office yet. Now, obviously, Alderson is a capable stopgap, but if they're going to hire somebody who's going to look to be here for the long haul, 10 years plus, in the role of president of baseball ops and or GM, I do want those people in the room when the Mets are making long-term financial investments and commitments to certain players. That part aside, if it were me, Javi Baez is a must sign. He is an absolute must sign. I think he is a superstar caliber player on the field. He is a superstar caliber, perfect for New York player off the field. I think he brings swagger. I think he brings some of the highest baseball IQ I have ever seen on the field. Now, look, people are going to call out to certain errors and certain blunders and yeah, 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 yeah. Javi Baez is freakishly athletic and freakishly smart at the game of baseball together, and you just do not see that combination all the time. Uh, I think also, if you look at his numbers, everybody praises the Cespedes acquisition in 2015, and rightfully so. Well, Baez was just as good, if not slightly better than Cespedes. The problem is that the team around him largely failed. So I think Baez did everything that we asked him to do upon being here. Mm -hmm. I think Lindor was a little bit more comfortable, and it's not about coddling, but look, it's his best friend, and they get along really well, and they will work together, and I don't see them choking each other out in the clubhouse. So I think all of that is important. I think it matters. Um, so I would like to see Baez brought back. Absolute must sign. The yeah. other person I think is a must sign is Marcus Stroman. Mm-hmm. I think Stroman did everything you could possibly do in the absence of Jacob deGrom. He was our de facto ace. He was our best pitcher all season long, not named Aaron Loop, obviously in a completely different role, but Stroman brings so much to the table. I think Stroman is actually getting better. I think Stroman is finding himself on a team with DeGrom. I think that they are different pitchers fundamentally, but I think that they have learned a lot from each other, specifically Stroman from DeGrom. And being around Jeremy Hefner, I think has helped. And I think Stroman is turning a corner where you know, he was sort of an inconsistent guy, a little peaks and valleys in his career. I think we're going to see more of what we saw last year from Marcus Stroman going forward. And the pitching market's just not that great. And the Mets are going to need some pitching. So I think he's a must sign. And then before I throw it back to you, the other one that to me is a no brainer is Noah Syndergaard. Noah Syndergaard, for all intents and purposes, this is the only organization that he has ever known. I know that he started in with the Blue Jays, but you know what? He's been here for part of his minor league career, all through his major league career. He rehabbed here. It is a no-brainer for me to offer him the qualifying offer. He will accept it. I understand that that's a lot of money to give to somebody who pitched like five total innings after missing a full year, but he did come back and did pitch. 
He did look like Syndergaard, albeit in a very small sample size. And again, I'm going to talk about the pitching market and where it goes after guys like Stroman and Syndergaard. And you have two people, one of which you can negotiate with exclusively. The other one who basically said, if the Mets offer me the qualifying offer, I'm going to take it. Yeah. Is it a risk? Sure. Could it blow up in their face? Sure. But Steve Cohen's got deep, deep enough pockets where a one-year commitment, even for a lot of money, to me, does not hinder them from doing anything else. It sucks that Syndergaard got hurt at the time that he got hurt and it was in a walk year. It's a perfect storm of terrible circumstances. But the bottom line is, I think you just give him the qualifying offer, let him accept it, and then, you know, you can go to war with DeGrom, Syndergaard, Stroman, Carrasco's under contract, Walker's under contract, you've got McGill, you've got Peterson, you have some depth there. And I think that all of a sudden, now you can very quickly shift your focus to other areas of need for this team, namely the lineup and to a lesser extent, the bullpen. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more with the people that you picked to bring back. Going back to Javi Baez, I think one big thing that wasn't mentioned about him was was his speed and his awareness on the base paths. I think that's entirely important to this team moving forward, especially since they struggled so much. A lot of it has to do with uh, the Gary D. Sarcina element at third base, but Javi Baez, what he brought on the base pass was something that we haven't seen for a long time, maybe since like a Jose Reyes. I totally agree. Um, you know, his base running is one of the best elements of his game. Like I said, his IQ is just so high. He's so aware and he's aggressive, but he's aggressive in a way that it's intelligently aggressive. Let's put it that way. And a good comp is Jonathan VR, who we watched all year. Jonathan VR uh, got pressed into duty at third base and played really admirably. I thought that, you know, from the midway point of the season, maybe a little bit before that, all the way through the end of the season, it was his job to lose at third. And to his credit, he never really lost it. VR played over his head better than we could expect. Um, but he does a lot of bonehead things on the bases because he's very aggressive, very fast, but not quite as savvy as Javi Baez. And with Baez, you know, Baez might not be as quick as VR is, but he's smarter than him. At least he runs like it. And, you know, so I think when you compare those two players, whenever somebody's aggressive, they're going to run into outs like Baez did, like I mentioned a few minutes ago. But you see the difference. And for Met fans, I think it's very convenient because you don't have to look any further than look at what Baez did when we got him and look at what VR did all year. And you look at the dangers of aggression or overaggression, and you look at somebody who does it in a smart way. There's always going to be be missteps when you're aggressive but you know Baez is smart enough to limit those and on the basis that is so important especially for a team that hasn't had a ton of team speed over the last several years struggles to drive in runs you know uh, I've seen so many times over the last couple of years double up the gap with a runner on first base guys being held at third because they're just not quick enough or don't get a great jump or hold up when they shouldn't you know so a guy like Baez affects this team and this lineup and this run production in more ways than one. Marcus Stroman also interesting enough. I People love him. People hate him. I'm more of a champion for him. I think that he pitches so differently than DeGrom. It's different contrasting, and I think it's perfect for the rotation. Uh, I think that they should definitely try to bring him back. The price tag worries me a little bit, and I only say that because I don't have full confidence right now in this rotation, and that's with Jacob DeGrom. Because we don't know how healthy he is. Noah Syndergaard obviously has not played enough coming back from Tommy John surgery. You got the Carlos Carrasco now having surgery as well. 
The only person that is healthy is Taiwan Walker. And I really think because of the way he pitched in New York that Stroman is the guy that you go to get. But the price tag, I, I don't know if maybe they can get two equal pitchers for the price tag. I think the Mets definitely need to bring in uh, maybe two or three starting pitchers. I really don't want to see McGill or Peterson in the rotation this year. I think they need more seasoning down in the minors. They got thrusted up here and pushed during, you know, 2020. It was Peterson who was coming from double A. And then you have McGill having to come up through all the injuries. And I really wanted them to get more seasoning down in the minors before they become a fixture in this rotation. So I don't know if the Mets go out and bring in a, a more starting pitchers or if they just pay Stroman the amount that he wants. Obviously, Syndergaard needs to get the qualifying offer. Um, I don't know if they're going to try to work out a deal, but I don't know if that's like insulting him if they do something like that instead. And if he says no, then they don't even get a draft pick. But, uh, you know, definitely try to get Stroman. Definitely qualifying offer for Noah Syndergaard. And um, what are your thoughts on the rotation? Do you have confidence in this rotation? Like, even with DeGrom, I'm, I'm still worried because... He was injured all year, and it does worry me going into next year. I mean, I don't think you can, as right now we're talking on this day, November 4th, I don't think you can have confidence in the rotation because you alluded to it. We haven't seen Jacob deGrom pitch uh, since the halfway point of the season, right before the All-Star break. Um, we only saw a few innings out of Noah Syndergaard. He looked good, but he's got to get stretched out, and who knows how many innings he can give you next year. Who knows if he's even going to be back like we've been talking about. You know, we don't know if Strowman's coming back. So those are two major pieces that might not even be on the team, although we both think they should. Then you've got a huge question mark around the best pitcher in baseball with DeGrom. Taiwan Walker, to me, is a question mark. He was great in the first half. He pitched more innings than he has in a very long time this year and he broke down in the second half and was as good as he was before the All-Star break and he deserved to go to the All-Star game. He was almost that bad afterward. So it was a complete yin and yang situation, Jekyll and Hyde, whatever you want to call it. And Carlos Carrasco, who was brought here along with Lindor to be a steadying force in the rotation because that's what he's always been in his career. I mean, Carlos Carrasco is a way above average major league pitcher since he joined the Indians rotation. So, um, but he had his problems too. So there's not a person that I just mentioned that doesn't have some kind of question mark around them, uh, whether it be coming back health or both or some combination of that. And so I don't think that you can be confident on November 4th at all. And I think you're right. The Mets need to sign two or three pitchers. I mean, you know, I think they can keep some stuff in-house. I do agree with you that, you know, maybe Peterson and McGill need a little bit more time in the minors. I'd like to see them be depth pieces. And you know what? If DeGrom comes back healthy and they re-sign Stroman and they give Syndergaard the qualifying offer and he accepts and Taiwan Walker is healthy and Carlos Carrasco is healthy, well, there's your starting five right there in some order. And then you still have Trevor Williams, who they went and acquired, and he was pretty good, and he's a good swing guy. He can spot start. He can go into the bullpen. And, you know, now all of a sudden you're six deep without even touching any of those other two pitchers that you mentioned. And we don't have to talk about, you know, Lucchese going to be out for a while. And Jordan Yamamoto, who I thought was a good depth signing when they when they brought him in. You know, these all become depth pieces. That's a pretty good top five. And with, with questions, I understand that because some of those questions won't go away just because the Mets re-signed them. But I would be much more comfortable going to war with those five than I would be if you start pulling some of those people, Syndergaard and Stroman, out of the mix. Now, the best pitcher outside of Jacob DeGrom, and I know, you know, you could throw Marcus Stroman in there, but obviously Aaron Loop was 
really, really good this season, and I hope they retain him. I just don't want to get too crazy with contracts for relievers because, you know, one year he could be amazing, the next year he could be awful. And it, it happens with every reliever that's out there. They're a dime a dozen, and you're basically just throwing the dice and hoping something, you know, lands the way you want to. But if they do bring back Aaron Loop, I really wouldn't mind seeing them, if they did it on a minor league deal, bring back Brad Hand as well. I think that the Mets suffered from not having two lefties in the pen because sometimes they would only bring in Loop for one batter and he would throw seven pitches and that was it. So if they could bring in another lefty and if it's Brad Hand on a minor deal, I would take that. What are your thoughts on on bringing back Loop and or Hand? Yeah, I think there's a couple people that you mentioned in that long free agent list that the Mets have that are intriguing to me. You know, I thought um, hand was okay. He wasn't, he didn't set the world on fire, but he was fine. And I would bring him back on a minor's deal. I thought Hembry was okay. I would bring a guy like him back on a minor's deal if, if they were both, uh, you know, interested in that. With Loop, it's tough because I agree with you. I think there's a couple of top bullpen guys every single year. Some of them have staying power. Nobody is Mariano Rivera, but there are guys like, you know, Andrew Miller that had a huge run and, you know, guys like Craig Kimbrell and uh, the run that the uh, Josh hater is on and and stuff like that um and guys might take slight steps back but you know every year there's a few guys who are right there at the top and then there were some people that come out of nowhere and surprise you and Aaron Loop is is one of them and you know do I think Aaron Loop can do that again I think he probably can do I think he will no I, I don't think he will I don't think he'll be that good so the Mets are in a weird spot because he was their best reliever bullpens are finicky the Mets have their problems in the bullpen so they kind of have to sign him but I'm with you you can't break the bank because here's the thing let me just paint a scenario for you Aaron Loop's really good and he pitches to a 2.5 2.05 ERA well that's like a full run worse than what he did this year so that's gonna look fun that's and that's great that'll be great but that's gonna look fundamentally different in terms of runs allowed and you know games blown and things like that along mm-hmm. the way you know he was almost unhittable I believe what did he finish the season with like a, a 1.08 ERA somewhere in that ballpark so you know he could be a run worse and still have an incredible year, but then you're going like, ah, yeah, but you know what? It blew some critical games for us. And, you know, that's probably unfair, but that's the kind of thing that you're comparing it to. It's almost like, you know, comparing Michael Jordan's son to Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky's son to Wayne Gretzky, like that kind of thing where, you know, you're like, you're only comparing him to himself, but you're comparing him to the absolute best version that he has ever put on display. How do you pay that guy? It's hard. It's a hard decision. And you can tell we didn't even bring up Michael Conforto. Now, I know that they will offer him the QO. I would do it as well. With Scott Boers being his agent and I think still expecting to get a big deal, I think with the way he went out on the last game of the season, definitely the last game at City Field, I think we've seen the last of Michael Conforto. I really do. Uh, what do you yeah. think? Do you think that he comes back or are you are you set on him not returning? Um. So this might be an unpopular thing for listeners of your show. Um, I like Michael Conforto. I like the two home runs in the World Series. I like what he did in 15. He was a huge shot in the arm along with Cespedes and Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe, and he really came up and did some things. Um, I like him as a player. I like that we drafted him, but I am not a homegrown hugger. I am not a prospect hugger by any stretch. And I think that too many people have too fond a feeling for Michael Conforto. I think over the course of his career, 
Michael Conforto is not as bad as he was this year, but he's also not as good as he was in that All-Star year. I mean, he's never really put it together for an entire season. And I know in the All-Star year, he got hurt that year on that freak injury with the swing. And, you know, that kind of derailed everything and prevented him from, quote unquote, doing it for a whole year. But whatever. The bottom line is he's had six years to do it and he never has. And I don't think he's a player that's worth $150 million. I don't think he's certainly not a player that's worth more than that. And I think ultimately what's going to happen is he is going to get big money. Will he get $150, $200 million? I don't know. I think he will get because of Boris and because the where the market is and because another team is going to see him and look at the first round pedigree and look at what he quote unquote can do and they'll think they can fix him. I think ultimately he'll wind up making more than whatever that qualifying offer is at 18.6 or 18.7, at least over let's say three years or four years, you know, I could see him clearly getting, you know, 25 million over four years or something like that, which might be a disappointment from what he thought he could potentially get. But I mean, if you're faced with the potential of getting that, you're obviously going to turn down the one year $18.6 million deal. And so that's why for me, up until two days ago, when we recorded my show, I was very anti giving Conforto the qualifying offer at all, because I didn't want him to accept it. I was looking at Conforto as one of the faces of change to just switch up this offense and this lineup and inject some new life into it. I was looking at him along with JD Davis as the two that were very easy to walk away from for two completely different reasons. But I was looking at those two guys as the ones that were easy to say goodbye to. And over the last couple of days, I've just sort of realized that, you know what, Conforto is going to get money from somewhere. So we should give him a qualifying offer because I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell that he takes it. Yeah. During the offseason, I wanted the Mets to sign him to a big deal instead of Francisco Lindor mainly because there was a lot of shortstops out there coming into this offseason and there really wasn't a big outfield crop. That kind of backfired with his production. I've always been there for the homegrown guys. I always liked that, mainly because the Mets rarely ever do it. The Mets have yeah. never been about keeping their homegrown guys. I mean, look at what happened to Tom Seaver, and we don't even know what's going to happen with Jacob deGrom. But I never felt the way that, and I, I never took this from Met fans, that he was that guy. Like David Wright. David Wright was that guy. He got that send-off. Even being injured for those couple of years, he did enough in his career to get that send-off. And I never got that. Even Piazza, who was not even a homegrown guy, but he did enough in his career to get that send-off. I felt like up until maybe the last inning of the last game at City Field that people started to realize that maybe Conforto won't be staying with this team. I never got that feel like him and the Met fan base really had that connection. You know, I think a large part of it is simply because of how disappointing the year was as it slowly tapered off. I mean, the season was like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Like mm -hmm. the the collapse in 07 was almost better because it was just, it happened in the blink of an eye. This was like, oh yeah, they're back in it. No, they're not. They're back in it. No, they're not. I think if they just win these three games, no, they can't. I think if they do this, no, they won't. And then, you know, next thing you know, you look up and you spent 103 days in first place and you wind up not even making the playoffs and you have this, you know, epic, it was a collapse. Oh, it's it was historic. Like a, a dismantling. It was yeah, historic. It was a dismantling. Yep. Absolutely. And so I think the way the season went, and I also think that the way Conforto's individual season went, there just wasn't a lot of love because to go back to something I was saying earlier, people talk about how the Mets didn't do enough at the deadline or, you know, 
Javi Baez's contributions kind of get lost in the shuffle. Well, you know, look, the Mets had a lot of problems and the Mets probably could have done more in some other ways, but the Mets didn't make the playoffs largely for four or five reasons. Michael Conforto, J.D. Davis, Dom Smith, Jeff mm-hmm. McNeil. That's why they didn't make the playoffs, yep. realistically, and and two bad months of Francisco Lindor. And that's all really Lindor was bad for. If you look at his numbers from May 28th through the rest of the season, they were very Lindor-like. Problem was, first two months were so bad, it tanked his numbers. And as soon as he looked like he was starting to put it together, he got hurt with the oblique and he missed six weeks. So, you know, I think Lindor, because he signed the big deal, because he got into the altercation with Jeff McNeil, because people think that, uh, Steve Cohen went out and got Baez because he's friends and he needs coddling. He gets unfairly lumped in as the poster child of failure for this Mets team, but it wasn't. It was Conforto, McNeil, J.D. Davis, and Dom Smith. And that's why when people say the Mets didn't do enough for the deadline, I'm like, well, what could they have done? I mean, that's that's four pieces out of the eight pieces in your everyday lineup that you were expecting to produce to varying degrees. Now, I know J.D. Davis was good at points when he wasn't hurt, but he also went through a stretch where he was 0 for 10 with 10 strikeouts with the bases loaded. That ain't going to get it done. Michael Conforto hit 200 for most of the season. That ain't going to get it done. We thought you know, we thought Conforto was going to be our three hitter. How do you replace him? Well, maybe you could slot a guy like McNeil into the three hole. Oops, you can't because instead of hitting 320, he's hitting 220. You know, let's put Dom Smith there. And at times, Dom Smith showed flashes. And I appreciate a lot what Dom Smith did in making strides in the outfield, turning himself into a competent left fielder. But, you know, Dom Smith was another one. I mean, he just at, at times he looked completely lost. It looked like he couldn't hit a fastball or a breaking ball. So, you know, pitchers could go up there in a big spot and do whatever they want. He would strike out on three pitches. So those people are the culprits as to why this Mets team was not successful. Did they have injuries in the rotation? Yes. Did they have inconsistency in the bullpen? Yes. But I thought this team pitched good enough from starting pitching all the way through the back end of the bullpen to win this division, albeit a bad division. But they just didn't show up on offense at all, aside from Pete Alonso, half the year from Javi Baez, and some of the time from Francisco Lindor. Yeah, and and you know Brandon Nimmo when he was healthy. And Brandon was, Nimmo, yes, excuse de- me. Definitely yeah. hard to keep him on the field. The Mets got a lot of work to do this offseason with regards to pitching rotation, the lineup. It's crazy to think that maybe the bullpen is the strongest thing moving forward. But before I let you go, I want to get into the QBC next week, Saturday, November 13th, the Queens Baseball Convention presented by SNY. John, you'll be the MC this year and you'll be hosting the Todd Frazier panel. Tell me how you got involved with QBC. It's kind of funny. I've, I've known uh, Keith, who's, you know, one of the people behind the curtain over there at the QBC. I've known him for uh, a pretty long time, all things considered. And um, there was always talks about us kind of doing some stuff together. And it just never really worked out. Scheduling for me when the QBC was in the busiest time of the year for me, I just could never do it. And so I always wanted to contribute in some way, shape or form. Maybe I'm seeing the event, maybe not. You know, there were other people that kind of were doing that for a while that have now taken a step aside. So it never really worked out until that sort of remote satellite uh, BC event, which was the Keith Hernandez uh, signing that took place at City Field. I co-hosted that with uh, Dennis Holden, DHAP, and uh, that was a lot of fun. And yeah, this opportunity just kind of arose and uh, I jumped at the opportunity because you know, the QBC is a ton of fun and it's a great event. One of the best events all year for Met fans. And they do a great job of kind of, you know, getting people from all 
all across Mets fandom, not only, you know, current and, you know, recent, if not former players, but, you know, people like Keith Hernandez who are obviously beloved, not only for what he did on the field, but for what he does on SNY. And this year, Gary Cohen and Ron Darling will make their debut at the QBC. And, you know, there's going to be personalities from SNY and personalities from WFAN. So just across the entire landscape, beat writers, across the entire landscape of Mets fandom. And so I'm just, I'm just so happy to be involved and to finally make it where I can, I, I can be there because Keith and I have talked about it for a while. Yeah, obviously you mentioned the Gary Cohen and Ron Darling panel that'll be there. Obviously you're going to be hosting the Todd Frazier panel. They're going to have a book author panel. A couple of people that have been on this show already, they're doing the State of the Mets. Uh, Mark Healy, I yep. actually had him on last week. He's going to be there. Lori Rubinson, Tim Healy, uh, Tim Ryder, I've had him on the show. He's on the Apple. I think they also have Nick Davis from Once Upon a Time in Queens. I've had him on the show as well. He's going to be there doing a panel. What a great lineup. Great thing for Mets fans. Because, you know, I know they did this, I think, before the pandemic, 2020. The Mets did, to me, it was the first I've ever seen of a kind of like a convention where you can meet the players and there's games and all that stuff. They had it at City Field. I didn't get to go to that one. But it was the first time it was like open to like all the fans, not just like season ticket holders and I know QBC's been around for a while doing their thing and I really am excited for this one and the doors open at 11 a.m. Saturday November 13th at Mulcahy's Pub in Nwanta the Queens Baseball Convention make sure to get your tickets at queensbaseballconvention.com John I can't thank you enough for joining me it was fun for me I hope you enjoyed yourself as well let everyone know what you're working on and where they can reach you on social media absolutely um First of all, I had a blast. I love talking about the Mets. I hope that came through to all your listeners and to you as well. I do want to mention um, something that just came out. I'm not sure if it's even on the website yet, but there's also going to be a uh, Meet the Mets Execs uh, panel that'll feature uh, Will Carafello, who is the social media director over at the team, uh, Tara Napoli, and uh, legendary PR rep um, Jay Horowitz, which I will also be moderating. Awesome. So um, I'm excited to do that as well. Um, as far as other projects I got going on, right now it's kind of nice because aside from the QBC, I've got a few weeks off, so it's a little bit quieter, but then I will kind of pick up my uh, my motorsports hosting uh, schedule will pick up in earnest in January, so I'll be pretty busy there. And then uh, people who want to follow me, it's pretty easy. I've got uh, Twitter and I've got Instagram, and it's just at John Sapanaro, J-O-H-N-S-A-P-O-N-A-R-O. So just my name, you start to search it, you should find me pretty easily. And uh, if I can plug my other podcast, is that cool with you? Absolutely, <laughs> man. Um, so not only can you listen to this great podcast, but uh, if you like Mets content, you can check out Till Mets Do Us Part, which is on the Chop Sports Network. We record episodes every week. New episodes drop every single Thursday alongside my co-host, Matt Ibanez. It's great. It's just like this. It's, it's Met conversation by two really passionate Met fans. And then for the folks who have a little bit of overlap, like I do, Mets fans and Jets fans, um, I also host a Jets podcast called The God damn jets over at the chop sports network as well and that releases every wednesday my co-host there is a uh, former uh, host personality and former flight crew jets cheerleader kimberly cantoni and uh we do a great job of kind of previewing uh the following ga- the, the coming game and recapping the game that just happened that comes out every wednesday so you can find both of those podcasts on apple podcasts spotify google play all the places that you find podcasts you can find us 
Man, the suffering is strong. Jets and Mets fan. For me, I'm a Mets and Cowboys fan, and I like listening to, uh, you got some Cowboy shows on uh, the Chop Media Network, so you guys got some good stuff going on there. Again, appreciate you for coming on, uh, and I hope that you can come on again soon. It'd be a joy to have you on again. You Have a good one, man. Take care. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I, I had a blast. This is fantastic. I'll come on anytime you want. That was John Sabanero. John is a comic host, actor, writer, voiceover artist. The man does it all. But most importantly, he's a Mets fan and co-host Till Mets Do Us Par with Matt Banyas, a Mets podcast, a part of Chop Sports Media. Make sure to check it out along with the other podcasts that he's mentioned and all the podcasts on Chop Sports Media. Now, my final thoughts before the train leaves the station, MLB offseason schedule. Let's get into this because this is very important. November 7th, Free agency begins and the deadline for qualifying offers. So the Mets have to decide if they're going to offer Michael Conforto and Noah Syndergaard their qualifying offer. November 9th through the 11th is the GM meetings. Will we have a president of baseball operations or a GM? Let me answer that for you. No, it sounds like that's a big no. It sounds like Sandy Alderson will be the lead going into the GM meetings. And that was from Tim Healy on Twitter. November 17th, deadline for free agents to accept the qualifying offer. So they get about 10 days. November 19th, the deadline to add minor leaguers to the 40-man roster and avoid the Rule 5 draft. December 1st, non-tender deadline. But most importantly, the collective bargaining agreement expires at 11:59 p.m. The Mets can still make trades, they can still do signings, but that's kind of unlikely if you don't know what's going into the CBA. So there might be nothing going on. Mets might not even have a president of baseball operations or GM by them or even a manager. I don't know how they're doing this. I've mentioned and talked about structure. The Mets need structure. Whether it's getting the president of baseball operations or skipping it and just having a GM. That needs to be in place then the manager, and then they need to pick the roster. In no way do I want Sandy Alderson doing all of this before these executives are put into place. That's why I am a little disappointed that Sandy will be going to the GM meetings. I know not much happens at the GM meetings, but still. Where things do go down, December 6th through the 9th, the winter meetings in Orlando. That's where, you know, the trades and the free agent signings definitely happen. But we might not even get that if there's no CBA. December 9th would be the Rule 5 draft. January 15th, international signing period opens. And then January 13th through February 18th, arbitration hearings. So a lot's happening or a lot might not happen. Will we get a CBA? Won't we get a CBA? And what will the Mets do in regards to their front office hierarchy? It's very important because for one, I don't want Sandy Alderson being that guy again. I want him to move aside like he said he was. I don't know what Cohen and Sandy have planned when it comes to hiring this front office. But when they do hire someone, I might not even be excited about it because I just want this whole situation to end. I want them to get the right person in charge because whoever is leading the charge, whether it's a president of baseball operations or the GM or it's both, this decision is going to impact the Mets for the next decade to come. And I want them to get it right. I want to see a World Series. I've never gotten to see the Mets win a championship. I want that. So let's get this front office right. I mentioned it in one of my Rising Apple articles. The Mets need, most importantly, to fix the front office and get this 
team in the right direction moving forward. Now, as we wrap up this show, please take a few minutes to write me a review. Let me know what you think of the show, what you like, what you don't like. I want to make this show better each and every week for you Met fans out there. So by going on Apple Podcasts, rating the show from one to five stars, uh, hopefully you're giving me five stars, and leaving a review in the comments section could only help this show grow. So I would appreciate you doing that for me. I'm thankful for everyone that's been tuning into this show, whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener. I'm grateful for each and every one of you, and you'll know I will tell you that every week. Also, I recently became a contributor for Rising Apple, a New York Mets site on the fan-sided network. You can check out my articles for Rising Apple, as I'll leave the link in the description of this week's episode. So if you check out the description, you will find the article that I most recently written. Make sure to follow Rising Apple on Twitter at Rising Apple Blog. Well, that will do it for this week's podcast. Always remember to listen, subscribe, share, and review. For Anthony Rivera, you've been listening to Subway to Shea. Let's go Mets. <laughs>